Hello everyone and welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet live event on Parasite Basics and Deworming, brought to you free by InterVet Shearing Plow Animal Health. Please take a moment to visit them at www.intervet.com. My name is Christy West. I'm the digital editor and producer of the Horse.com. Joining us today are two top-notch experts, Martin Carr Nielsen, DVM PhD, an assistant professor in equine clinical parasitology at the University of Copenhagen, Denmark, and Wendy Valla, VMD, Diplomate ACVIM, Senior Equine Technical Services Specialist at InterVet Shearing Plow Animal Health. She specializes in internal medicine and equine neonatology and perinatology. Thanks Martin Wendy for joining us and for volunteering to extend the session to one hour to handle all these great questions. Please enjoy this Ask the Vet Live event on Parasite Basics and Deworming brought to you free by InterVet Shearing Plow Animal Health. Please take a moment to visit them at www.intervet.com. All right, let's get started. Our very first question is from Don, who wants to know, how does harrowing a pasture affect the spread of parasites? Well, I can start off with one. Um, I think first we have to recognize manure does two things. It can protect eggs and infective larvae from UV light, which can be very detrimental, but it also provides nutrients. And so when you harrow a field, you break up those protective manure piles and you help expose a lot of eggs and infective larvae to sunlight, which can be very detrimental to small strongyles. I think, however, it's very important that when you harrow a field, you then rest that pasture so that you give nature and sunlight a chance to really kill the larvae and the infective stages before you put your, pa your, pa your horses back on pasture. So harrowing is a good thing if it's done when it's hot and dry and there's plenty of sunlight and the temperatures are high enough. And you also have the ability to keep your horses off the pasture after you've done that. Martin, do you yes. have any comments? Well, I think, I think this is the uh, time to, to run my little animation here. Perfect. So uh, if we just take a quick look at this, this is really illustrating what Wendy just said, that uh, we should always consider parasite control as a whole. So there's a, there's a cycle, so that there will always be larvae on pasture. So here we see a grazing horse, and um, note that there are some yellow worms there. Those are resistant worms. There will always be worms resistant to the drugs that we use, no matter what drug we use. So the question is how, how many resistant worms we have. So we see the horse grazing. It ingests some worms. They do infect the horse. Some of them will be resistant. Others will not. Um, then we want to treat that horse so we get rid of the susceptible worms. Uh, there's still a lot of worms on the picture. Note that all the worms on the field are not affected by the drug at this time, only the worms within the horse. And some of them did survive. So what then happens is, as in life in general, male meets female. and and there's a romance and, of course, some nice little <laughs> resistant offspring here. And they will then spread out on the pasture. So it, here is it, it is important that there's a dilution effect. There's, there's still a lot of susceptible worms. And, and overall, we did get an increase in resistant worms, but not very much because there's still a dilution by, by the other worms that were not affected. So then harrowing, which can be good. Um, because if, if we rest the pasture, as Wendy said, then we can reduce that load of, of worms and larvae on the pasture. That would look, oh, I just forgot to say, of course, the horse still graze, so 
it continues grazing, and then we see more and more worms accumulating. So if we do harrowing or if we change to a different field, then the picture could look like this, which is good. This could also be in the middle of the winter where we don't have very many larvae on the pasture. So the horse can still have worms, so just to something to think about. So if we treat in a condition like this, if we treat all the horses with a very aggressive drug, well, the same thing will happen as before, but now we don't have the dilution uh, as we did before. So the selection for resistant can be quicker under such conditions, such as winter or drought, very drought, uh, dry and, and hot periods in the middle of the summer in the southern United States. So just for for an illustration of, I think, a lot of the questions that we will be asked for this session, uh, if you could all bear these pictures in mind, it might help um, understanding what we talk about. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Martin, for that. I think that's a, that's a great illustration. I think that should help people understand what's going on. Let's move on to our next questions. We've got some, sev several, some similar questions from a few different people, uh, Matthew and Sharon. How should you approach deworming a colicky horse? And, or one that has, hasn't been dewormed in a year or more. I have concerns of impaction due to the dying worms. Well, I think, I think there is a risk of impaction in any horse with parasites. And I basically uh, should just say, in general, all horses have parasites. So, so that in itself is not a worry. But the roundworms, or the ascrites, uh, especially in foals and very young horses, they can um, cause impaction if you uh, treat them with the drug that kills them. And uh, that has been shown. But uh, a horse that hasn't been treated with, uh, for a year, that horse is not necessarily at any higher risk for any such condition just because it hasn't been treated. Because it might not need any treatments. That's the big question. If that horse can maintain a low parasite burden all by itself, then there's no reason to have any, any worries. The other scenario that, that is asked about here is, is the colicky horse, that horse, the horse that does have symptoms right now and right here. Should that horse be treated with a dewormer? And, and that's a good question. In general, I never recommend that. I want uh, the colic to be handled first, the pain and whatever condition bothers the horse. And when that is resolved, then we can start thinking about deworming it. Um, but that's just my personal advice. I would agree Wendy? with Martin in that when I'm presented with a colicky horse, the first is to do a good physical and get a good history and work up the colic. And parasites may be part of that problem or they may play no role in that. So I would not automatically treat a colicky horse with a dewormer thinking parasites are the cause. I would work it through, do a physical, get a history, do a rectal, and decide what might be causing the problem. Um, I also agree with Martin that where I'm most concerned is if I have a colicky foal and I'm concerned that roundworms may be playing a problem, then I may want to be very careful in treating that foal for parasites. If I think he's had a very poor deworming history, so again I get a history and do a physical, and if I even run a fecal, uh, I may be very concerned roundworms are a problem. And then I would be cautious before I use a drug that's going to kill off those adults, I may oil that foal first, so I would give him mineral oil via stomach tube to give him a laxative. I may pre-treat him with a drug like banamine, and then I may choose to deworm him. So 
age of the horse will certainly change how I approach that colic and whether parasites are a problem, but I never supersede a good physical, good history, and don't rush right into just treatment. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, our next question is from Virginia, who is using a product called Vermex, which is holistic. Is it good to kill tapeworms? I can, I'll be curious what Martin will say. I know I went online and I looked up Vermix and to read about because I was not familiar with it. Um, it is a herbal supplement and I finally got to the bottom of what some of the ingredients were. But nowhere on the website um, did I find out what it's even supposed to be good for as far as specific parasites. So I cannot address any question with tapeworms. What I would caution owners in that any of these herbal, holistic approaches, just as when we choose a dewormer, a chemical dewormer, you need to ask about studies and about facts. And something that sounds good, I would still like to see studies. And I could not find any scientific studies on this product. So I cannot comment one way or the other as to whether or not this would be a good product to use against tapeworms, but I would be cautious and I would talk with your veterinarian and ask for some scientific fact that shows me a product works and if I put my horse on it, it would not be an excuse not to do a fecal exam and see if it's really working. Well, I would agree completely with that and also I'd say I don't know Vermix either, but uh, over the past years I've often encountered uh, different kinds of products that are natural uh, supplement type products that claim to be efficacious against parasites. When I and when I've approached the people who sell them and asked for the documentation, I've never seen any. Uh, I'm not saying that there's no such um, thing as documentation for these products, but it seems to be very hard to get. And I would be I would be pretty cautious with using them uh, when when I can't get such information. Uh, there's there's a a couple of questions maybe later about other such products and it's the same story. Um, I, would, I would not really trust them if I can't get the information about their efficacy and also safety which is just as important. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Thank you very much. I was hoping to take just a moment just out of curiosity. Uh, everyone should see a poll coming up on your screen. We just out of curiosity, have you ever had to deal with drug resistant parasites in your horses? Just take a look at that while we're working on our next question, which is from Karen, who would like to know if can even a minor case of Strongyloides westeri cause weight loss and dulling of the coat? Well, first of all, Strongyloides westeri is um, a worm that, that basically only infects foals for the first few weeks of their lives. So we call them the threat worm. Um, and to answer the question, I would say no. Uh, it's a pretty rare parasite nowadays, and when we see it, we haven't really been able to relate them to any sort of disease in these foals. Uh, the foals do get diarrhea around that time. For a period, it was thought that it might, might be these parasites that caused the diarrhea, but now uh, we really don't think so. There's so many different things going on in the intestinal tract of a foal of that age including a bacterial population that is growing, the bacterial flora is being established, and there's also different viral infections and uh, a lot of other things that goes on at that time. So I would not worry about strongyloides um, westeri in these folds. And also, when they get past that 
first couple of months of age, then we don't see that parasite anymore. So the foals seem to be able to completely get rid of that parasite all by themselves. I really agree with Martin. And unfortunately, because we know this is one parasite that can be transferred from the mare to her foal in the milk, as well as the foal picking up from the environment, because of the maybe unwarranted fear of this parasite, many foals are started on deworming at a very young age, and it may be unnecessary because this really isn't the parasite of interest for most foals. It's not that pathogenic. Not sure. Our next question is from Edie. Actually, we had several people ask of this a similar question. Does each region of the United States call for its own deworming schedule or products? You know, we get this question all the time uh, in the United States. And what I would begin by saying is we don't deworm by zip code. Um, there are too many other factors that play a role. We do pay attention to the climate, whether you have hot, dry summers, whether you've got long, cold winters, whether you fall somewhere in between, because we know that heat and drought are detrimental for small strongiles. So in parts of the country and certain years where you may be experiencing a heat wave or a drought, we recommend not deworming during those periods of temperatures well above 85 degrees, particularly when it's dry, because Mother Nature is helping decrease the transmission of parasites, particularly small strongiles. If you live in the north where I do, up in Wisconsin, and we can get five, six months of really cold weather, the problem is the cold doesn't kill our parasites, but it decreases the transmission. So when we have a foot or more of snow on the ground or it's exceedingly cold and it's below 45 degrees for a sustained period, we also recommend that you don't need to be deworming on a regular basis when we're talking about adult horses and particularly strongiles. So I think climate plays a role. I think you need to recognize that that may change year to year. You may have a wet, warm year. You may have a cold summer one year and a hot, wet one another year. So you need to be flexible. Uh, your management will play a role. How many horses you have on your pasture may also affect your worming, deworming schedule, as well as your age of your horse, foals versus adults. And I'll let Martin comment a little bit more on the topic. Well, I, I, I think one positive thing about this question or these questions is that I, I sense that people begin to understand that, that parasite control programs should be different in different places. I think that's the positive part of this question. Uh, but the point is that this is, it's not enough to say that it's, it's at the regional level or the state level or the zip code level. The level where we want these, these parasite control programs to be different is at the farm level. That's where we have all the specific conditions that Wendy just described and uh, which we need to take into account when we come up with a good deworming uh, schedule for that farm. And that schedule should also always include regular testing with fecal samples, at least just to check if the drugs that are used are working. Uh, so, un unfortunately, we cannot just come up with a good uh, one-size-fits-all uh, program that would work in, in the northern part of whatever area. Uh, we, we need to be more specific and we need information and that's where you need to involve your own veterinarian uh, who would play a central role in this. 
Thanks, everybody. Um, next question is from Nora, who would like to know if there's anything new in deworming. Well, in terms of new drugs, I guess that's what she's she's asking. Um, we know that on for the past uh, over the past few years, we've seen a couple of new drugs uh, molecules on the market, uh, or some of them are being developed and may be reaching the market in the future. Uh, basically, there's been three of them. One of them, imidepside, has not been marketed in large animals. Uh, so far. It's only been marketed for cats first and then dogs, and it remains uncertain if it will be marketed for cattle, horses, and etc. We don't know, and if it does happen, it would take several years. Uh, my guess, personal guess, would be at least five years before we would see any such drug. Then there's the uh, Monopantel drug, which uh, was launched uh, last year in New Zealand, and that would in, in sheep, uh, for usage in sheep only. Um, that drug would potentially could become an equine product over the years. Again, five years or even more uh, is my guess before that would happen. So far, we only, we've only seen it for sheep, so there's, there's some work that needs to be done. And it, it is expensive to develop and test those drugs in horses. And then, most recently, there was uh, a new product presented last year called Durquantel. Uh, that has been a pretty promising drug for all host species except horses. Unfortunately, horses do not tolerate this drug. Uh, it is toxic to the horses, so that drug will never become an equine product. So we have the drugs that we have and the drugs that we have had for several decades now, and we will be having those drugs for the at least five years uh, ahead of time and maybe longer, so we need to protect those drugs and use them as intelligently as possible. And I think another area where there is more research going on, which may be helpful, are more diagnostic tests. So there may be yeah. a better way, for example, to diagnose tapeworm infection. There may eventually be a test that would help us know whether your horses are harboring encysted small strongyles, which is a hibernating phase of a parasite which will not be detected by a fecal. So while we're waiting for a new drug, in the meantime, we may benefit from new diagnostic tests which will help us fine-tune our deworming program. And then I think in the meantime, it has shifted our attention back to good husbandry. You know, what can we do that is not related to a drug to decrease our horse's exposure to parasites? So good old manure removal two, three times a week, decreasing the number of horses we have on a pasture, resting pastures, grazing our pastures with other species like sheep or cattle if we're lucky enough to have that option. So I think there are some other things that we can focus on because I don't think we should hang our hat on waiting for a new drug. We need to be more cognizant of what we can do in other ways to use the drugs we have more scientifically, more strategically, and also just go back to good animal basic husbandry methods. Excellent points, and thank you for making them. Um, just for a moment, I'll take, take a moment to let you know of our poll results from our earlier poll on drug-resistant parasites in your horses. 81% uh, of you said that you have not dealt with this problem, but 19% of you said you have. 
be interesting to learn a little bit more about that. For the moment, we're going to move, move on to our next question from Rainey, who would like to know, if no eggs show up in a sample sent to the vet, what worms could I still be dealing with that are just not shedding eggs? I'll start. Um, fecals tell you are, are looking for eggs that are being shed by adult parasites in your horse. So one way you may not see eggs in your fecal is that the sample was handled inappropriately. So if you let your fecal heat up to a very high temperature, it will start, the eggs will start to hatch. And so by the time you get it to your veterinarian's office, the eggs may already have been hatched and gone. So you need to handle the sample appropriately or you will get uh, an erroneous value. The next is if, you're, if the parasites in your horse are in what we call the pre-patent stage. So the parasites are still too young to be producing eggs, but they're still in your horse causing damage. So a negative egg count doesn't mean your horse doesn't have younger stages of that parasite. And then the third possibility is we know the small strongyle spends a certain amount of time hibernating or walled off and insisted in, your, in the wall of your horse's large intestine. And when they're insisted in hibernating, they're not producing eggs. And so here is another specific life cycle stage which we will not detect with a fecal. And then the fourth is the, sam the testing that is actually used to run a fecal. Some tests are more sensitive than others, particularly in horses. So if you were to use a, a testing method used for dogs and cats, like a fecal solution, it may be extremely inaccurate. And so you may say you have no eggs, and yet if we were to retest that same sample using a more sensitive method, we could tell you, oh, you've got strongyle eggs, you have tapeworm eggs. So I think there are at least four different reasons why you may, when you say you have negative fecal, it may not really mean your horse is, doesn't have parasites. No horse is parasite-free, and I think that's another important point. Right. Yeah, well, let me just add that, um, yes, well, zero does not mean that the horse is parasite-free, but it means that the horse is, is shedding a very, very low number of parasite eggs. And what we have found in, in some of the research we've been doing is that uh, horses have a strong tendency to maintain that level. So we, we kind of very often see these constant zero horses. So if you do consecutive fecal samples over the years from your horses, you will find that you have in your herd, you will have several of these constant very low egg shedders or constant zero horses, while there will be others that are constantly bouncing bang up to, to pretty high egg shedding levels. And so that's just the fingerprint of each farm. And that's the information that we use for the uh, parasite control program that we do then design and we want to address and we want to treat these high shedders and maybe treat them more aggressively. And then these low egg shedders, they do not need as many treatments because they can maintain these low levels of egg shedding even without treatment intervention. So. Um, a zero egg count does not rule out parasite infection. I think that's, that's the important answer for this question. But what it does tell us is uh, the level of egg shedding in that horse, the egg shedding capacity uh, of that horse. I, my colleague or our colleague, Ray, Craig Reinemeyer, he has introduced the term the strongyle contaminated potential, SCP. 
uh, for each horse, and that is really determined by the level of egg shedding in each horse. So that is the information that we get from, from doing the fecals. Thanks very much for that. We'd like to take just a quick moment to ask, uh, just ask the audience another question. Do you involve your veterinarian in your deworming program? And we'll move on to our next uh, question from Phil. Actually, has a couple of questions. One is how often and when should I do fecal tests? And the second question is how often should I deworm for tapeworms? Well, uh, it's a good question. Good couple of questions. First of all, uh, when you do fecal tests, you should you should have in mind that there's two potential reasons for doing it. One is what we just talked about determining the level of egg shedding in the herd, in individual horses within the herd, and then deciding the treatment approach based on, on that information. The other very important thing that we also use the fecal uh, samples for is testing for drug efficacy or testing for any signs of resistance to the drugs that are being used on the farm. That is very, very important. And if, if we're talking to a horse owner that is, who's, who's interested in trying out running some fecals for the first time maybe perhaps ever and uh, wants to get into this somehow and they ask me what is what is more important to do because we only have so much time and money and all that then I recommend test the efficacy of the drugs and that we do with two fecal samples one at the day of treatment and the other one 14 days after treatment and then we look at the level of reduction of egg shedding in the horses and we do it not just in one horse here and there we do it at the at the herd level at the farm level so we want to test a group of horses on each farm uh, being treated with the same drug and see if the drug works satisfactorily uh, that is that is very important and that I recommend to do once a year so testing for drug efficacy do that once a year that is my recommendation and then from there um, in adult horses, uh, another test can be useful in the spring, for instance, just to see where are, are the horses, which horses are the high egg shedders, and so on and so forth. So um, I think in my country, Denmark, where we do have uh, prescription only of drugs, so people do a lot of fecal testing, most people do two, two uh, samples per year, one in the spring and one in the fall, so before and after the grazing season. And in many ways, I think that's a good framework to build on, but that needs to be modified uh, on the different farms, uh, according to what we talked about earlier. I think the other question was, how often should I deworm for tapeworms? But oh, yes. Do you want to mention that, Martin? Because you. No, that's fine. You, yeah. Go ahead. You just. <laughs> well, I, I think for the tapeworms, I just forgot about that question. For the tapeworms, um, a good basis is one a year, one one treatment a year. Um, there's tapeworms everywhere. I think that's just as important as some of the other points we've been trying to drive here. It is not a surprise to find tapeworms on any farm in any country of the world where horses are grazing. And it should not cause a lot of distress and, and fear among horse owners that we found tapeworms because they are there. So it's not a surprise. So the, the, the point is that horses live with the worms and most of the time they do not cause any problems. So what we want to do with the tapeworm treatment is to just 
uh, just prevent any any type of accumulation of worm burdens in these horses. And worms, tapeworms are accumulated over the grazing season, so the best try, time to treat and get rid of the high worm burdens is towards the end of the grazing season. And that's also where we know that the work the best, uh, at least from the uh, information that we do have from drug testing. So Wendy, I don't know if you have anything to add. Well, I think you've covered most of it. I just encourage owners to start looking at fecal testing as something, as Martin mentioned, that may be done you know, twice a year as a standard protocol, but that your veterinarian may recommend doing fecals more frequently on specific horses that may be the high shedders or may be symptomatic. And so I think we should start to look at a fecal for some horses like we do doing a chemistry panel or a complete blood count. So sometimes we will recommend that as a diagnostic tool. And I don't think we should hang our hat on, I do one fecal a year or two fecals a year, and that answers all my questions. We may have to do them at different times for different reasons. Good answers. Thank you very much. Our next question is from Marilyn, who'd like to know that if a horse is on a daily dewormer, what is the time frame that the paste warmer is given? Um, I think that depends a little bit about where you live, but in general, for uh, the work that's been done with the daily dewormer, the recommendation certainly still is that we need to be treating for parasites or stages of, of, par of uh, parasites uh, such as bots, and that would require botocide administered maybe once a year or twice a year, depending on where you live. So if you live in the northern climates, typically we give a botocide sometime after fly season is over, so late fall, early winter. Uh, if you live down south, many places use botocides twice a year, and so those would be drugs like moxidectin or ivermectin. Uh, it's also recommended when on the daily dewormer that you may include a drug that's effective against insisted smostrongyles. And so that would be a drug like moxidectin or a larvicidal dose of fenbendazole, which is giving fenbendazole at a double dose once a day for five days. And that's often, I think there's a little bit of debate, but that's often done either at the end of the grazing season or immediately before the start of the next grazing season. Um, and so those would be two times where you would give an additional drug in addition to the daily dewormer. And I would again caution that anyone who is using the daily dewormer, you still need to periodically test your horses with fecals to make sure that they are responding as you expect them to on that daily dewormer and that we are not seeing drug resistance develop. Martin? Yes, well, uh, I would just like to add that if you want to keep your horse on any treatment regimen, you should do it for a reason. Uh, so there should be a specific reason for, for instance, this horse to be on a daily dewormer. The horse may not need to be treated every day, but there might be a reason to do it. For instance, if the horse is one of these extreme high setters, one of these horses that just always gets all the parasites, that would be a a candidate horse for using a daily dewormer. That could be a, a good approach for trying to get that, that particular horse uh, or the parasites within that horse under control. But the, on the same herd, on the same field, there might be horses who, who just don't need it. So uh, again, I'm trying to argue against just 
using a recipe, you see, okay, we keep all our horses on a specific regimen here because the horses are not the same. There are differences between the horses, and we, and we notice that on each and every farm, there, there's this distribution of parasite burdens among horses. Some have a lot, but most of them do not have very much. So use it for a reason, uh, and then it might be a wise approach to do. So that's just my one comment. All right, thanks very much. Uh, right before we read our next question, I just thought I'd share the results of our latest poll. Do you involve your veterinarian in your deworming programs? You can see here, it looks like a little over half of you do and a little under half don't. So from there, we'll move on to our next question. Uh, Tammy would like to know, what, what do you recommend to rid a senior horse over 20 years of age of bloodworms? Of, of which kind of worms, sorry? Bloodworms. Well, bloodworms, first of all, is, is a term that often gets a little bit misunderstood because uh, some, some use the term bloodworms for all the small, for all the strongyal parasites, which is the, the most prevalent parasite that horses get. Um, there's a lot of different species in this group, and one of these species is what we do call the bloodworm, which is actually the main topic of my research, is Strongylus vulgaris. And that parasite has become extremely rare, uh, in, uh, especially in western parts of the world where, where we do treat on a regular basis. We do not see the parasite very much, um, basically sometimes not at all. I'm currently running some tests or some samples from U.S. farms and, and well, I can't re reveal all my results, but I can say that it's a very, very rare parasite in at least in farms uh, around Kentucky. So, <laughs> so, um, so, I'm just saying that that the bloodworms are still a very dangerous parasite if they occur. We know that they can cause lots of disease and and colic in a horse, and, and horses can even die in, in extreme cases. But it has become very, very rare. Um, so, and also another good um, good piece of news is that. This parasite has not, as at least as we know, it has not developed resistance to any other drug that, that we use. So basically, regardless of what you treat with, you will get the bloodworm. And that also is regardless of the age of the horse, uh, whether it's a young or older horse. So the bloodworm in itself should not be a major worry. Um, so I hope that answers the, the question. And I would just mention one other point. When you talk about a senior horse, they're getting older, and that means their immune system is also getting older. And there's only been, I think it's one or two studies out there that looked at older horses tend to develop a certain type of a tumor called a pituitary tumor, which will cause Cushing's disease. So if you have an older geriatric, maybe pasture potato out there that has a longer than normal hair coat, he doesn't shed out normally, maybe losing a little bit of weight, good appetite. They may have this tumor, and it's treatable, but the other thing the tumor does is it will suppress the horse's immune system. And so in a study done at Oklahoma, they noticed that horses that have this tumor may tend to start shedding higher numbers of probably small strongyle eggs. We have no reason to suspect they are the blood worms or the large strongyles. So 
one thing I would add from this question, your older horse should not be ignored, and you should do fecals on that horse to see if something changes, and maybe they start shedding again, and it may cause you to look at their immune system and maybe this syndrome of called Cushing's. Very good. Thank you very much. Um, we've received a number of questions about the efficacy of various brand products. I mean, we, I could list several. Uh, what are your... I'm just going to kind of put all those together into one question and say, what are your thoughts on the efficacy of particular medications and products and the evidence that's out there? I will answer briefly and let Martin uh, deal with this in more detail, but I would tell you that if you are using a product that is commercially available and has been licensed, then it has had to meet certain requirements and it has had to show efficacy or at least bioequivalence. So using my, my one word of caution is do not use compounded drugs, do not use drugs that you have no information on. Use ones that have been licensed, at least in the United States, by the FDA. And then you can be assured that they have had to meet certain standards. And I think that's a very important point. Martin, I'll let you deal with this in more detail. Well, thank you. Um, well, I, th I think generally we, we can trust the drugs that we do have are marketed for horses. First of all, they've all been tested uh, for safety. And there's a couple of questions today about somebody have been hearing about adverse ref effects to different drugs out there. And basically, that has all been tested, so we can trust the drugs that we have. What is what information that we do not get just when we read the label on the drugs is whether there's a risk of the parasites being resistant to this particular drug that you just bought. It, it's not on the label, it's not on the little slip of paper within the, the box next to the tube. That is information that is constantly changing and it might also be different from farm to farm and also from region to region and definitely from country to country. And so, so that I would definitely recommend you to seek information about current levels of, of resistance to um, dewormer drugs. And there's a couple of webinars on thehorse.com uh, that were brought last year by Craig Reinemeyer. You can still find them uh, here on, on the website and watch them and get some good information. I, I would strongly recommend you do so. And so there's also just lots of news information on thehorse.com where you can get updated on the most recent developments of resistance to the drugs that we have on the market. Let me just give one broad comment um, that there's actually no drug that is free of resistance uh, among uh, horse parasites. I think that's very important. There's no safe choice out there. There has been reports of resistance to each and every drug type that we do have on the market. So it's not the question of I don't believe the, there's there's a chance of of resistance occurring. It is already is is already happening out there, but what you need to know is what is going on on your premises, and that's the fecal testing. Gotcha. Thanks very much for that. Uh, for the moment, we're going to step just into another quick poll of our audience. How often do you utilize fecal egg count testing? And we'll move on to our next question from Dion, who says that uh, the last time she dewormed her horse, the mare bit down on the paste injector and therefore received less paste than intended. And what, what can she do to ensure her horse is protected? 
Well, yes, uh, that's a very good question because that's something that happens to all of us when we treat our horses. Sometimes they spit it out or they do something else and we're not sure if they got the full dose. Um, and in this case, of course, it's, it's important to try and get an estimate of did the horse get half the dose or 90% or didn't it get any of it at all. If we have just a broad idea of how much it got, then, then we can retreat that horse. Just simply give it some more. And um, there's, a, there's a pretty good safety margin on these drugs. So even though we, we overdose that particular horse, we, uh, with most of the drugs, at least in adult horses, let me say that, uh, there's, there's a very, very, very tiny risk of any adverse reactions to that drug. So if, for instance, this horse uh, spit out half the dose, then I would give half a dose again, or maybe even a little bit more than half a dose, just to be sure that we reach the, the adequate dose. Underdosing is always a bad thing to do. You do get some parasites killed, uh, but you do not get rid of all the parasites that you wanted to, and also you um, actually may risk just inducing some resistant parasites, because if you do not treat adequately, uh, you just treat it with an insufficient dose, then some of these parasites with resistant genes may just survive and pass the genes on to the next um, generation of parasites. I agree with Martin, and the two other things I would mention is get a weight tape and weight tape your horse. Um, sometimes yeah. it will surprise you how much your horse might actually weigh, because most of us don't have scales. And the second is read the tube that you're about to use as far as the paste dewormer, because there are a number of different products out there, and some get 1,100 pounds, some get 1,250 pounds, some get 1,320 pounds. So know what size horse that tube will treat and know how much your horse weighs. And I think that's a huge uh, step in the right direction for what Martin says, don't underdose your horse. Thank you very much for that. All right, our next question is from Dara, who would like to know when it is best to start worming a foal, deworming a foal, and with what product? What is the next part of that is what's the best worming schedule for pregnant mares? Um, I will begin with that, and Martin, I'm sure, will have additional comments. Um, we've learned recently that one of the most harmful parasites in foals is the roundworm or ascrid, and that parasite is developing resistance to a class of drugs with ivermectin, moxidectin, uh, that particular class. And so one very important word of caution is if you have foals, you need to be doing fecals and testing to make sure what drug classes are still working, particularly against roundworms. With that in mind, uh, again, going back to one of our colleagues, Dr. Reinemeyer, the recommendation is we should not begin deworming our foals too soon. Foals need to encounter parasites, both strongyles and ascrids and others, because that is what stimulates their immune system to begin developing age-related immunity. And so I caution owners about not deworming at a week or two weeks or three weeks of age. Let's wait. And parasites, uh, in general, uh, do not reach that prepatent period until, or beyond prepatency, until they're at least 
six to eight weeks of age or older. So in general, we recommend waiting until at least 60 days or two months before we treat our foals for the first time. We should deworm our broodmare probably either before or shortly after she foals if she's not been dewormed recently because foals love to eat mom's manure. And so we want to minimize the number of parasite eggs they come in contact with during those first few weeks of life. But otherwise, wait probably at least until two months of age. Drugs that are very effective against both the adult roundworm and the migrating roundworm, which actually migrates through your foal's lungs, those two drugs are ivermectin and what we call the larvicidal dose of fenbendazole, which is a double dose of fenbendazole given once a day for five days. Those two drugs are the two drugs you can rely on to decrease the burden of both young larvae as well as adults. Strongid or Purintel is also very effective in the young foal against the adult form. So we recommend don't deworm too early. Try to space your dewormings out at least two months apart so that we don't encourage the development of drug-resistant roundworms and even other parasites. Martin, you probably want to continue. Well, basically I agree with what you said. I think we should always keep in mind when we want to treat any horse with a dewormer is what is the parasite that we want to target. And in the falls, it is very true that the first parasite that we should worry about is the roundworm or the ascarid, parascaris equorum. And I fully agree that two to three months of age, that's the first time that we should start thinking about treatment. And I don't think I need to comment anymore on the choice of drugs. So that is very correct. Uh, I would like to add that when, as the foal gets older, then the scenario changes. So it starts being the, uh, the roundworm, which is the most important. But as the foal gets older, then it also gets strongyles. And then it becomes a little bit more complex because in, in very broad terms, there's a risk of the round, roundworms being resistant to ivermectin and moxidectin. That we have seen from a lot of different continents and countries. So if, if those drugs have been used on the premises, there's, there's a risk of resistance being out there. Then when we come to the strandials, it's the opposite. Most likely uh, ivermectin and moxidectin will still be working with a few exceptions uh, from a few studies in the US, but most, mostly I, I would still trust them to be working. But I would test, of course, but uh, to begin with, that's, that would be my, my assumption. Whereas we do have reports of resistance to the two other drugs available. So it's, it's kind of complementary. And it's, it just becomes very important to know which parasites we're treating. And it's very different, different between different foals when that scenario changes. When does a foal go from being dominated by roundworms to being dominated by strongyles? It's difficult to say, but it starts probably around weaning. And then we see a decline of the roundworms. That's just the immune system of the foals that, that fights these parasites off. So the roundworms gets, gets out of the picture. Most, most of the time, we do not see them very much when, when they become yearlings and older. And then it is the strongyles that dominate the picture. So some testing in the foals as well would be very useful. Otherwise, we just risk using the wrong drug. And then we live on a false sense of security. We think we've done it. We think we've treated these foals and done a good job. But what if it just did not work? 
I mean, that we cannot live with, so we have to know what we're doing. All right, thanks very much. We're going to take a quick look at the results of our latest poll. And as you can see, regarding the uh, frequency of fecal checks, about 40% uh, of you do them as directed by the vet, about 40% never do them, and everybody else is scattered between one to three times a year. We're going to try to move a little bit more quickly now. We've got about uh, 12 minutes left to go and quite a few questions. Our next one is from Meredith, who would like to know how easy it is to do a fecal test and what's the best way. Perhaps there's a resource that you could point us to? Well, well, it is it is pretty easy. Uh, it's not rocket science to do a fecal. Um, what you need is is a microscope and basically some use a centrifuge, uh, some use a, a McMaster slide, and and I think she's asking whether a horse owner could do it. Uh, and basically, there's nothing nothing wrong with that. Uh, that would maybe make it a little bit easier for the horse owner to to run some some routine tests uh, by themselves. So, so uh, I know that there's been a couple of, of products on the market uh, where they try to sell, you know, a full test system with everything needed and to be used uh, in the barn. So I know that there are, there are such products out there. And um, you need just uh, some feces, some, some flotational fluid, as we call it, and then a microscope, and, then, and a little bit of training. Mm -hmm. uh, you need somebody with knowledge to introduce you to this. But with, with a little bit of training and some routine, yes, you can do it. And if you then there's a, let, Sorry, Wendy, just one more okay. comment. Then the big, the big tricky thing is to interpret the findings because you get some numbers. And what to do with them? You need, you need some advice still. You need somebody to go to or to give you the advice and to suggest and decide what to do on the farm. But it is useful, as we've said many times tonight, to get some information of the drug levels, drug efficacy levels, and also with the parasites that the foals have, as we just discussed. Sorry, Wendy. No, I, I agree, and that's what I was going to emphasize, interpreting the results. And the other is that if you are looking to submit these samples to your vet, get a fresh sample, identify it. If you're not going to be able to submit it for a while, then refrigerate it, meaning it's going to sit six or eight hours somewhere, keep it cool. And the other important point your veterinarian is going to want to know, when was the last time you dewormed that particular horse and what was the product you used? And all of that will help your veterinarian interpret the results that he gets. So. Part of it is how you collect it, how you take care of the sample, and the other is what information you provide regarding the last deworming. All right, we'll move on to uh, one other quick question of our audience, since we've talked quite a bit about frequency of deworming. How often do you deworm your adult horses? And while you're working on that, we'll go on to our next question. Uh, similar question from a few different people. Uh, should a horse be on a daily dewormer or rotational, and does it matter? Um, I'll start with that one. Uh, again, I think Martin has already addressed this issue. There's no one program that fits every horse. And so the daily dewormer may work very well for particularly a high shedder where it's hard to control um, his parasite shedding capacity. But I don't think one program uh, is necessarily better than another unless you're monitoring it. So rotation may 
may very well work for some farms, but again, rotation is not a blind rotation between products. In my mind, it means I'm going to use more than one class of dewormer on a farm over a year because I have different parasites, different age groups of horses, and different drug resistance problems. So rotation, again, doesn't mean I recommend four products year in and year out, regardless of time of year and where I live. It simply means, in my mind, I'm going to use more than one drug class to keep my horses as healthy as possible. So I would recommend, again, any program needs to be discussed with your veterinarian. You need to figure out which of your horses are most at risk or most susceptible for parasite shedding. Um, and then design a product that works. And don't forget that along with the chemical, maybe you rest your pastures, maybe you decrease the number of horses you have on your pasture, maybe you look at composting manure, maybe you look at removing manure more frequently, and that may mean you, you use less drug. So don't hide behind a chemical and think that that's going to protect your horse necessarily. Well, um uh, basically, yes, I, I fully agree with the comments, and I would just add that, that uh, first of all, no matter what you do, make sure that the drugs that you want to use are working. So when, when people ask us about a certain rotational schedule, yes, but make sure that the drugs that you do use are working, because rotation does not help if the drugs are not used, are not working, or if there's a lot of resistance to them, then rotation won't help us. And the same goes for the, uh, the daily dewormer, which I think we've already addressed quite uh, firmly. So. Maybe we should just move on to the right. last couple of questions. Sounds good. Uh, right before I read that last question, I'll share the results of our last poll. Is how often our audience deworms their adult horses. Out of this group, nobody's using a daily dewormer, but uh, people are using a rotate. Looks like uh, people are deworming one to three or four or more times a year, 36% apiece, 14% each of our audience using a mass directed by the vet or depending on the fecal egg count results. And we'll move on to another question uh, from Noel. The uh, new protocol, and I assume by this we're talking about fecal egg count testing, followed by deworming is needed, is extremely expensive. And how can the owner decrease these expenses? Yes, well, there's, there's one obvious way that, that expenses will be decreased, and that's just the number of treatments. The number of treatments applied on in each herd will will be reduced largely uh, if you if you start testing instead and then treating the horses differently according to the results from the fecal tests then no matter what you do the uh, treatment intensity intensity should go down and that's that's really saving money there and then there was a question earlier whether horse owners would be able to perform some fecals themselves and as I already said yes that is possible with some training and some advice, and then you can save some money that way also. Uh, so, so there's different ways of, of saving money, so it doesn't have to become very expensive. Um, uh, basically, well, sometimes uh, we, we did some calculations recently, and it depends on, on what the treatment level is before you start, but if it is the, the usual four to six times a year, well, then you might even make money rather than just spending more money in fecals. So. 
I, I that wouldn't be. Uh, sorry, that's okay, Wendy. Right. Just go ahead. I would also encourage you to talk with your veterinarian because more and more veterinary clinics are incorporating fecal analysis as an in-house test. And when they can run the sample in-house, it frequently brings the cost down substantially. It's when you have to submit a fecal and your veterinarian in turn has to send that sample out and then another lab runs the sample and charges your vet, then suddenly the cost goes up. But I think more and more veterinary hospitals and clinics are trying to provide this service at a reasonable cost. And then the other thing I always can try to relate to is, if I can buy a $3 tube of paste, yes, that may sound cheaper, but if that paste stops working altogether on my farm, what is the cost of that if I have suddenly used so much of that cheap dewormer that now that whole class of drug no longer works in my horses on my farm, how do you put a price tag on that? So I think the goal is twofold. Let's find, let's work with our veterinarians. They are trying to provide us with cheaper ways to do the fecal analysis, and then let's spend our money wisely, or otherwise the cheap drug really may not be such a good deal. Thanks for that answer. We've got just time for just a couple more. Um, Jonica would like to know, does putting lime on the pasture have any effect on parasite control? Martin? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, um, well, I, I understand the thought behind this question, and uh, there has been some studies done, not not with horse parasites, but with parasites of ruminants, which are closely related. And you have to put a lot of lime uh, on that pasture to really kill them. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't count on lime to have any any large effect on the survival of parasites. Um, so. I think if you if you increase the concentration to something very high, so high that that is not even useful for the pasture, then you might get an effect. But but in general, no, that would not be a valid approach for parasite control. All right, let's step on to another question by Vicky, who would like to know if tail rubbing after deworming, as in a week or so later, is an, is an indication of not using the right deworming drug. Um, I imagine. The tail rubbing refers to pinworms or oxyurus equi. And although we have had reports where the horses seem to have some very stubborn pinworm infections where drugs that we thought were effective may not seem to be as effective, there are also many other reasons why a horse may tail rub. And some may be uh, allergic responses. There may be numerous other causes. But uh, oxyurus, I would recommend, again, you talk with your veterinarian. That particular parasite, the adult worm, crawls out of actually a horse's rectum, lays her eggs right around the, the anus underneath that tail in the perineal area, and then crawls back in again. And so one thing to do is to lift your horse's tail and take a really good look and see if you see these little white egg patches around the rectum. And if you truly have a problem with pinworms that are not apparently being cleared up by the drug you last used, then that's a different issue. But I would not put all tail rubbing cases under parasites because we do know there are other causes. Martin? Right. I agree. I have nothing further. 
Yes. All right, we've got time for just about one more question from Carrie, who mentions a paper by Dr. Reinemeyer et al. presented at the uh, meeting of the AA, American Association of Veterinary Parasitologists in Denver in 2003. And do we feel this is a good reference? She was surprised to see that a hot state like Texas is such a heavy parasite load at the same time a cool area like Michigan has the same has similar loads. Can you share any more inf information on this? Pardon? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly which paper is being referred to. This comment says uh, that Texas was around 55 percent, and Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan were 98 percent. Prevalence of parasites, or I believe so. Yeah. Well, um, as I, I, I don't know the this study in details. Um, well, I, basically, it depends on many things. But if you if you study the same age group, then, then you can compare prevalences of parasites uh, across different, different states. And we do know that Texas is different from the more northern states in terms of the dryness there and the, the dry and hot summers. And there's just not as much transmission of parasites um, in Texas in the summertime than in Wisconsin, et cetera, up north. So, what I do not know or remember right now from this study is when it was done, for instance, which time of the year, and so on and so forth. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to see differences between states in terms of parasite prevalence. And that goes back to some of the things we discussed before, uh, earlier tonight or today. It's, it's evening here in Denmark, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, uh, no problem. And that there, there might be differences between uh, between, for instance, states in the U.S. Be just because of climatic differences. And dry and hot conditions are not favorable for parasite transmission. So that's not a, a time where the parasite will, will really thrive very well, whereas in, in, in the winters uh, of Texas might be more beneficial to the parasites. I don't know if that answered the question, though. But <laughs> sorry, I, I have to go back and read Reinemeyer's paper. <laughs> no, I, and I can comment. I heard him present at the AAP, and I think what Martin was driving at is exactly what um, Dr. Reinemeyer was focusing on, and that is kind of the misconception that where we live up north, and now that I live in western Wisconsin, no matter how cold the winter gets, no matter how many months you are covered in snow and ice and, and a deep uh, frost line, parasites often many stages of them become dormant. They are not killed. And so down south, there is actually a time of year when it gets hot enough that parasites are actually being killed by Mother Nature on the pastures. Up north, we are often not so lucky. We may have warm summers, but it may never get hot enough or dry enough up here that we have the same kill-off of infective larvae that you see down south. So in a mm. sense, even our summers, horses may potentially, depending how cool the summer is, still be acquiring parasites on pasture. And then the flip side is, in the winter down south, it's only a little bit cooler, and you're still transmitting some parasites. Up north, where you think it's nice and cold, guess what? We're not killing them. So we never have a kill-off season in the north like you do in the south. So you're actually as hot as dry as it gets down there, and you may complain with the heat, it's probably doing more to clean up some of your pastures, not totally, but decrease parasite burden, whereas in the north, um, owners 
have long been under the misconception that when spring arrives, they have a clean pasture, and that really is not the case up here. We have parasites that are just being reactivated, warming up, and ready to infect a new, a new horse. Uh, I think that was one of the points when yeah, we look yeah. at hot versus cold. Uh, most people think the cold has a much more beneficial effect, and it does not. All right. Well, thank you. That's well, basically, excellent information. Go ahead. We, we can say that, that, that the worms always find a way to complete the life cycle. And they, if, if it's a hot climate like in Louisiana or Texas, well, then they may just rest and hibernate over the summer because the summer is not very beneficial to the worms. It's too hot and all that. And then the transmission occurs in the winter and, and the spring and the fall. While up north where Wendy lives, it's the opposite and where I live. And, and it's just, the worms just adjust to the climate, but they all, always find a way to complete the life cycle. So there's worms everywhere. That's just the point. Right. Well, thank you, everybody, for your time. We're actually a little bit uh, over time already. And Martin and Wendy, thanks so much for volunteering some extra time to deal with all these wonderful questions. I know there's a few that we still were not able to get to. And uh, please let us know if you'd like to, to hear another event uh, along these lines. Thank you so much for participating. Uh, the recording of this session will be archived soon on thehorse.com for repeat listening. And last but, of course, not least, thank you to InterVet Shearing Plow Animal Help for bringing this free session to you today. Please visit them at www.intervet.com. For more information on equine parasites and deworming, please see the parasites topic at www.thehorse.com, as discussed earlier in the session. Thanks, everybody, for your attention, and I hope you have a wonderful day.